The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Well, I appreciate your prayers uh, for this series in Romans, and uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to make it through today's service without the same technical or personal difficulties that we had last week. Uh, We won't get far into Romans this week, but uh, you have to prepare yourself to climb a mountain, right? And uh, the book of Romans is the Mount Everest of all the New Testament epistles, and we're still packing our gear for the trip. So if you would... Uh, Take your Bibles with me and let's open to the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and we will begin and end at verse 1, Romans chapter 1, and we'll read verse 1 together. Why don't you follow with me as I read? Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, this week as we do every week, acknowledging that without you, we can do nothing. Without you, we can't understand these things. So, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things as we read your word. Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, not just to understand these things in our heads, Lord, but that it would translate to our hearts and our lives. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, we would walk away changed because of what we study today. And uh, Father, we uh, pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you had the opportunity to introduce yourself to a new group of people, uh, what would you say about yourself? What would be important for them to know about you? You know, sometimes you find yourself in a position where you have to say something about yourself, maybe it's some kind of social gathering or some kind of informal setting at work, or maybe you've just been introduced to somebody new in your neighborhood, and they say something like, so tell me something about yourself. How would you introduce yourself? What would be important for them to know about who you are? What would you say for yourself? Who are you? And there's a number of ways that we could answer that question. Uh, Maybe you'd say something about your family and where you're from. You know, I'm a husband, I'm a father of three, I'm originally from New York. Maybe you'd say something about your occupation, what you do for a living. You know, I work as an HVAC tech or a financial analyst or a nurse or a school teacher. Maybe you'd say something about what you're passionate about. You know, I like to travel. I like to play basketball. I watch sports. I like to go fishing or hunting or whatever it is that you like to do. You know, for some of you, it's even part of your email address. You know, what you like to do is part of your email address as well or social media, whatever you use for social media. I remember there was a a pastor uh, I went to seminary with, and a part of his email address was Bear Hunter 3006. And sure enough, he was a bear hunter. Uh, He hunted grizzly bear, grizzly bears, brown bears, black bears up in Alaska. And he had some of the wildest stories. You can ask me about those later, but uh, it's crazy. uh, Some of the things that he experienced and I said, well, that explains the, the bear hunter, but what about the 3006? And he says, it's, it's a hunting rifle, 30-odd-six. And he knew right away that this wasn't my sport. 
but if that's your sport, you know, that's okay. And if you have 30-odd-6 as a part of your email address, you don't have to change it. And if you have a 30-odd-6, you can have whatever email address you want, okay? <laughs> but hobbies, they make for, for great conversation starters, but once you get beyond the, the kind of preliminary discussions, what would it be that really describes who you are? What do you have to say for yourself? If you're a believer, your hobbies, your occupation, even your family relations and upbringing don't reveal the most important thing about you as a person. Listen to this. The most important thing about you as a Christian is not who you are, but whose you are. Or to put it another way, the most important thing about you is not you. <laughs> our identity is forever changed by our encounter with the living Christ. And that's how it was for Paul. That's why he says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. In Colossians 3.4, he speaks about Christ who is our life. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but what? But Christ who lives in me. And, and sometimes I've found myself in conversations where people say, you know, can't we talk about something else? You know, why, why does everything have to be about Jesus in the Bible? Can't, can't we just have a normal conversation, whatever that means. Does it always have to be about your faith? You have such a one-track mind. Can't we talk just about how you're doing? And it's not that we don't have other conversations, but my relationship to Jesus is the most important thing about me. And if you want to know me, you're going to have to hear about Christ. And that's how it was for Paul. And as we pointed out last week, Paul has never met the church in Rome. He's introducing himself to this church and that uh, accounts for the longer introduction to the book of Romans. But in Romans chapter 1 and verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. I've often planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. I don't, I don't know all of you. I've, I've been prevented from coming to you. So he didn't know this church. This is his introduction. But he can't even introduce himself without placing himself in relationship to Jesus Christ. It's Jesus that gives him his true identity and the same is true for you today if you're a believer. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that you are not your own. You don't even belong to yourself. And in this strange world that we live in, where everything is about self-identity and self-expression and self-creation and being true to yourself, and the, the most important reality for so many people is, is how they define themselves, being able to define themselves as they please, the Apostle Paul reminds us that the most important reality for him wasn't him at all. It was Jesus. That's the most important reality about who I am. And he introduces himself in his relationship to Christ. He calls himself a bondservant of Christ. He's called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he's also set apart for the gospel of God, which verse 3 says is concerning his son, Jesus Christ. So, so it's all in relationship to Christ. His introduction to himself is really an introduction to Christ. He's a servant of Christ. He's been sent by Christ. He's set apart for the gospel concerning Christ. But that's not how he would have always been introduced. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, was once known as Saul of Tarsus, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor against the church. And before we jump into the introduction in Romans, it will be helpful for us to know something about his introduction in the rest of the scriptures. So... Who was Paul? Romans chapter 1 and verse 1 says, Paul. And we'll stop right there. 
I've, I've always wanted to do that. You know, Paul, we'll stop right, right there. We'll stop right there. But, but you have to stop with Paul because there's so much to say about Paul. Paul is the author of 13 letters in the New Testament. Almost one quarter of your New Testament is attributed to Paul. The only author who wrote more than Paul in the New Testament was Luke. If you combine uh, the Gospel of Luke with the book of Acts, uh, Luke has more words than Paul does. But when you examine the book of Acts, which Luke wrote, how much of the book of Acts talks about Paul? <laughs> so, so 16 chapters of, 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 of the Gospel of, uh, or the, the book of Acts, 16 chapters are about Paul. So, so when you add it all up, Paul's letters and Paul's ministry in the book of Acts cover nearly one-third of your New Testament. One out of every three verses in your New Testament was either written by Paul or it's about Paul. In fact, Paul is such a dominant figure that some people have considered Paul to be the second founder of Christianity. And that's more than could or should be said about Paul because Christianity only has one founder, amen, Jesus Christ. But when you think about Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone and the apostles and prophets being those foundational building blocks of the church, you have to agree that Paul is one of the largest foundation stones of the church that we have. But who was Paul before he became this foundational apostle and minister to the Gentiles? Let's flip back to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. For his own introduction here, Paul was in Jerusalem. And uh, there was a riot that broke out because uh, Paul was found in the temple. And uh, he asked the Roman guard for an opportunity to speak to the crowd. Acts chapter 21, look at verse 39. It says, But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And then if you flip over to chapter 22, or just scan down to chapter 22, verse 3. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up, brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. We have uh, Paul, was known as Saul of Tarsus, and uh, the city of Tarsus, uh, if we can flip to the map, map back here, it's located uh, 10 miles inland from the, the northeastern shore of the Mediterranean, and uh, hopefully this will work here. I got, a, I got a new gadget, so we'll see if it actually works. But uh, so right up here, you have uh, Tarsus, kind of located uh, about 10, 10 miles inland from uh, the northeastern uh, shore of uh, the eastern Mediterranean here. So you've got, you know, Jerusalem down here, and up here you have uh, Tarsus. So that's where Tarsus was located. Uh, if you wanted to uh, get to the cities of Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, Laodicea, Miletus, Ephesus, which are, you know, all the, the cities that are right around here, it's an area called Asia Minor. So a lot of the, uh, the book of Acts uh, concentrated on this area here. A lot of the books of the New Testament were written to this area here. So if you wanted to get from, you know, down here in uh, Jerusalem and you wanted to get through to Asia Minor, you had to come through Tarsus. Tarsus was like the gate to Asia Minor. So it was an important city and they had a, a widened path 
uh, through the mountains uh, of uh, Tarsus for, for travelers. Uh, so uh, it was an important city according to, to Paul and according to, to history as well. Uh, so it was also a university town. Uh, one source mentions that Tarsus became important as a university city. Uh, the people's zeal for learning and philosophy surpassed that of Athens and Alexandria. Uh, Athens and Alexandria were no, known for their learning, and uh, Tarsus was uh, another one of those that was like top-tier education. Uh, they were like the, the Yale, Princeton, and Harvard of their day, as one author said. And it's assumed that Paul's family were leading citizens in Tarsus uh, because Paul's family were Roman citizens. And that was an extreme honor to become a Roman citizen. Extreme honor. If you remember on one occasion, uh, Paul was about to be flogged. And actually, it's, it's right here in Acts 22, if you flip down to uh, verse 26 in Acts 22. He was about to be flogged. And when the centurion heard this, and what is this, that he was uh, about to be flogged, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. You don't treat Romans any kind of way. Verse 27, the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. You could buy Roman citizenship for 500 drachma. And I know that you guys are counting your drachmas out there. 500 drachma. It was the equivalent of a year and a half's wages. So, so just imagine all the money you make for a year and a half, all dedicated just to get the title of being a Roman citizen. That's just for the, the privilege of being a citizen of Rome. It was a big deal to be a Roman citizen. As a Roman citizen, you were exempt from degrading forms of punishment like scourging, like the flogging that was about to take place here in Acts 22. You're exempt from that. You're exempt from crucifixion. You had the right to appeal after a trial, uh, as Paul did later on, in the, uh, 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 later on in the book of Acts, he appealed to Caesar. You're exempt from imperial service. You couldn't be forced into the military or the, the kind of uh, service that the military imposed on occupied territories. If you remember, the uh, Roman military could kind of go through an area and force you to walk with them one mile. Hey, pick up my bags. You're going one mile. That was what they did to those that they occupied. But that's not for a Roman citizen. Uh, you're exempt from that as a Roman citizen. And being a citizen of Rome gave Paul privileges and rights and access and protection that many people didn't have. So when the Roman commander in Jerusalem found out that Paul was a Roman citizen, he says, we, we, we can't do this. We can't flog him. And he was afraid when he found out he was a Roman citizen. Verse 29 of chapter 22, it says, Therefore those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman and because he had put him in chains. I shouldn't have even shackled you. You're a Roman citizen. In Philippi, if you remember, when Paul was beaten, he was thrown in jail. He was ordered to leave the city of Philippi. But in Acts 16, Paul said to them in verse 37, they have beaten us in public without a trial. Men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison and now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. It was a privilege to be a Roman citizen, and Paul used every advantage he had for the sake of the gospel. He gained access to speak in Jerusalem because of his citizenship. He legitimized Christianity in the cities he visited because of his citizenship. 
He understood Greek and Roman philosophy as a Roman citizen, and he eventually made his way to Rome, all expenses paid trip under custody of a Roman guard, made his way to Rome because he appealed to Caesar as a Roman citizen. And he used all of these opportunities for the gospel. And right here in this congregation, we have people who have privileges and rights and access and protection that some of the rest of us don't have. You'll be able to get into places that I'll never be able to get to. You'll be able to talk to people that I wouldn't even be allowed to get near to to speak. You have clearance because of your occupation or maybe your education or family connections. And my question for you is how do you use those advantages? Do you look for privileges to share the gospel? Do you look at every privilege that you have as a gospel privilege? It's a gospel opportunity. And do you submit all that you are to the service of Jesus Christ, recognizing that in God's providence, you've been strategically placed where you are for such a time as this? When uh, Esther found herself as the queen of, of Persia, you remember what Mordecai said, Esther 4.14, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Use the opportunities, the privileges, the rights that you have for the sake of gospel witness. Use what you have for the Lord. And uh, wherever you find yourself, it's by God's design, and it's for God's purposes. Paul was also uh, known as a student of Gamaliel. He was uh, known as Saul of Tarsus, also a student of Gamaliel. In uh, Acts 22 and verse 3, he says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers. Not only did Paul have the the privilege of being a Roman citizen who had all the privileges, benefits of being a citizen, but he was also steeped in his Jewish heritage. He had all the credentials you could fit into your wallet as a Jewish nationalist. Even though he was born in Tarsus, he was raised in Jerusalem. He was brought up in the Holy City. It would be like a Roman Catholic who was raised in Vatican City or a Muslim who was raised in Mecca. He was in the holiest city of their religion. This is where Paul was raised. He was educated under Gamaliel, who was a revered teacher in Judaism. In the Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish oral tradition, it said that when Rabbi Gamaliel, the elder, died, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. I mean, that's how much they revered this teacher. And Paul was trained under him, the best of the best. And Paul excelled many of his contemporaries. He was first in his class, summa cum laude. He held himself in the strictest standard according to the law. In Galatians 1.14, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Why don't you flip over to Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. We'll look at uh, how Paul considered himself before he came to Christ, Philippians chapter 3. Starting at verse 4 there, he says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone, has, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Well, what did he put confidence in? Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day. Circumcision was considered the mark of fidelity to the Jewish faith. It was a sign of the covenant made to, by God to, to Abraham and his descendants. According to Genesis 17, Leviticus 12, Jewish males were to receive circumcision on the eighth day after birth. And Paul could say, 
I'm an eighth dayer. I was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. Goes on to say that he was of the nation Israel, of the tribe of ben- Benjamin in verse 5. And if you remember your Old Testament history, the nation of Israel was split in half after the foolishness of King Rehoboam in 1 Kings chapter 12. And if you want to know more about First and Second Kings, you should come to our Journey Through Scripture class. Brian Trusler is doing a wonderful job in there. But uh, after the foolishness of King Rehoboam, the, the kingdom split. Ten tribes went to the north. Two tribes remained loyal to the south. And do you remember what two tribes remained loyal? It was Judah and Benjamin. And Paul could say, I'm part of the loyal tribe. Not only was I circumcised on the eighth day, I'm part of Benjamin. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, of the nation of of Israel. I'm part of the loyal ones. And he was also named after King Saul, who was the most prominent and famous Benjamite. We know Paul by his uh, Roman name, uh, Paul, but... uh, as a Roman citizen, he would have actually been registered under three names with the government. Saul would have been his first name, which was his Hebrew name. His last name would have been his family name. And his middle name was a common Roman name, the name Paul. And the, the name Paul in uh, Latin, you know, which is what the Romans spoke, uh, the name Paul means small. <laughs> small Paul. Actually, there was a uh, one description of uh, Paul's, you know, physical characteristics. Uh, we don't, again, doesn't carry, you know, authority or weight, but, um, uh, but this might have been just kind of transferred down throughout history. But listen to this description of, of Paul that's found in an ancient writing. It says, Paul was a man of small stature with a bald head, crooked legs, and a good state of body with eyebrows meeting the unibrow and a nose that was somewhat hooked. That's how Paul was described, and he was a man of small stature, which might fit why he was actually named Paul. Maybe when he was born, he was small, and they they called him Paul, which actually makes sense of what we read in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, where it says, for his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. You know, Paul's nothing to look at. You know, why, why should we be afraid of Paul? You know, the little guy with the bald head and the hooked nose. Nobody's worried about Paul. Ain't nobody thinking about Paul. But that's how he was. After his conversion, he went by his Roman name because he became the apostle to the Gentiles. So he goes by the name Paul by his Roman name. But he was known as Saul of the nation of Israel, one of the, the tribe of, out of the tribe of Benjamin. He was also known as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Verse 4 again in Philippians 3, it says, A Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee. Uh, verse, verse 5, Hebrew of the Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee. And even though he was born in Tarsus, his, his thinking and his culture were Jewish. He spoke the, the Hebrew dialect. And he was so serious about the Jewish law that he was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees, the Pharisees were known for being professional practitioners of the law. There, there was a saying that if any two people reached heaven, one would be a scribe and the other would be a Pharisee. And Paul was a Pharisee. And later on in verse 6, Paul says, As to the righteousness which is found in the law, blameless. Found blameless. In the eyes of God, he was a wretched sinner just like the rest of us. You know, a child of, of wrath even as the rest. But according to what he looked like on the outside by his countrymen, nobody could point a finger at Paul to say, Hey, you're being inconsistent. You're a hypocrite. You're not really living what you preach. Paul lived what he taught. Nobody could find fault with Paul. 
And how serious was Paul about the Jewish traditions, verse 6, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. That's our third point. He was zealous for God, which is what he acknowledged when he was before the crowd on, uh, uh, in Jerusalem in Acts 22. He's zealous. I'm zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I, I understand where you're coming from. I know why you want to kill me, because I used to be just like you. And in this misdirected zeal, Paul attacked the church. Flip over to Acts 26. Acts 26. Look at verse 9. Acts 26 at verse 9. He says here, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And we see this zeal played out as Saul oversaw the first martyr of the Christian church. Remember that? Stephen, stoned for giving testimony to Jesus. And who was it that was checking the coats for the people who stoned Stephen? It was Saul. Yeah, I'll take, take your number, you know, number 33, all right, you know, you know get a good swing in there for me. That's, that's Paul. Taking the coats of those who committed the first martyr of the Christian church. In Acts 7.58, it says, When they had driven him out of the city, Stephen, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. First persecution was supervised by Paul. Acts 8 and verse 1, it says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout all the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. In Acts 8.3, it says, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison, uh, the word that was used for ravaging uh, the, the, the church was a, a word that was used in the Greek Old Testament for a wild boar who ravages a field, feeding on what he wants. And it's to say that Paul was like a wild beast destroying everything in his path. Well, let's hear Paul give this testimony again in Acts 26. He says, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus. And this is just what, he, what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. So he didn't just oversee the death of Stephen. He oversaw the death of multiple Christians. Multiple saints of God lost their life under the supervision of Paul. It says in verse 11, And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, even to foreign cities. So while, while so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, and this is where it all changed. In verse 13, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, outshone the, the midday sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, not just me, everybody fell, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, the same dialect that he was familiar with as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. You're like a wild beast just ravaging everywhere. It's hard for you to kick against me, isn't it? You're just hurting yourself. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. So he was converted and commissioned all at the same time. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, 
from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And from that day forward, Paul became a servant of Jesus Christ, sent by Christ, set apart by Christ. And if you don't believe in the sovereign choice of God in salvation, I don't know what you do with Paul. How do you explain this conversion? Paul, Paul, Paul wasn't seeking after Jesus. God wasn't waiting for, for Paul to seek after him with his own free will. God freed Paul's will so that he would respond to the light of Jesus Christ. And, and beloved, you may be here today praying for someone who just seems so far away from Jesus. They're hostile to the name of, of Jesus. They don't want to have anything to do with conversations about Jesus. They actually think that they're doing God's service by rejecting Jesus. You might have somebody in your life like that, but, but let's be reminded that no matter how lost somebody looks on the outside, that God can still sovereignly do the unexpected in their lives. This is what our God does. I was reminded of this in an article. There's a story of uh, uh, George Whitfield, and uh, there was a man named Thorpe who was a bitter opponent of everything that was holy, and he and a group of friends, all of them young rebellious thugs, conspired together to mock and oppose George Whitfield, a you know, famous uh, preacher during the Great Awakening, opposed his evangelistic ministry. And while Whitfield was preaching in Bristol, England, George Whitfield had severely crossed eyes. You know, almost reminds you a little bit of Paul's appearance. Crossed eyes, and the group referred to George Whitfield as Dr. Squintum, you know, because of his appearance. Their little gang, they called their little gang the Hellfire Club. And it disrupted meetings, mocked Whitfield on the streets, public places, tried to make his ministry a reproach. Whitfield's ministry had a deep and lasting impact, and these young hoodlums hated him for it. So Thorpe, one of the leaders of this little gang, got one of Whitfield's published sermons, and he took it into the local pub where the Hellfire Club was gathered together to drink and to make a mockery of Whitfield. So Thorpe was apparently pretty good at doing impressions. He had all of Whitfield's mannerisms and gestures down. So he stood in the center of this pub and the group of all of his friends, and he squinted his eyes, crossed his eyes, and began to deliver a rendition of one of Whitfield's sermons. But in the middle of the sermon that he was giving, the word of God pierced his heart. And he suddenly stopped and sat down, trembling and brokenhearted over what he himself had just been preaching, making a mockery of Whitfield, he's coming under conviction of the words that he's saying. And right then and there, he confessed the truth of the gospel and gave his heart to Christ. His aim was to taunt and to ridicule, but he accidentally converted himself. <laughs> it was the power of the, the word of God that penetrated his soul. Cut him to the heart. He became a preacher himself. And quite an effective evangelist because he knew the power of the word of God to penetrate a hardened heart. If you have somebody that you're praying for, and I, and I trust that there are many future servants of Christ who are still part of the Hellfire Club today. <laughs> Those who are making a mockery of Christ, are hardened against Christ, want nothing to do with Christ. Don't stop praying, don't stop sharing, don't stop trusting. The Lord can do the unexpected, and Paul is a primary example of what the Lord can do in his sovereign grace. So with that, let's turn back to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, and we'll start to dig in here. Romans chapter 1, 
verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul says, I'm a a bondservant. Another way you can say that is a slave. And slavery would have been a position that was totally despised by the Romans. They paid big money to gain more rights. You don't give up your rights. You do all that you can to gain rights. But not Paul. Paul says that I'm not asserting my rights. I'm abandoning my rights. I'm giving my rights up. I'm a slave. Would have made no sense to the, to the Romans. They would have identified the slave as human property, who had none of the important characteristics of a freedom, a freed person, was recognized as somebody who had the right to be a, a representative for himself in legal matters, had the right to protect your belongings from being illegally seized. You had the right to work where you pleased and the right to go where you pleased. But if you were under the yoke of slavery, you didn't have any of those rights. You're under the yoke. You don't represent yourself. Nothing that you have belongs to you. You don't go where you want. You don't work where you want. The master decides all of that for you. And Paul says, that's exactly who I am. That the master decides everything about my life. I don't represent myself. I, I don't go where I want. I don't work where I want. I don't, anything that I have belongs to him. That's, that's the perfect description of who I am. I am a slave of Christ. The Romans would have been ashamed to be known as slaves. But Paul says, this is what I glory in. I glory in being a slave of Christ. And he wants everybody to know this about him up front. I am a bond slave. It's not embarrassing. That's not embarrassing about me. This is what's most important to me. Like I said, he's not asserting his rights. He's abandoning his rights. And as he introduces himself to this Roman church, he wants them to know, first of all, that I am a slave. And if I'm a slave, that makes Jesus the master. He's the Lord. And that would have been true for Paul. Jesus is Lord of my life. He is the master of my life. And from the moment of conversion, Paul understood that Jesus was Lord. From the time Jesus began speaking to him on the Damascus Road, Jesus assumed full authority over Paul's life. And Paul acknowledged that. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 6, he says, The Lord said to him, Get up, enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Now, now, now he's, he assumes the, the position of the slave, the servant. My master tells me where to go and what I do. He understood that from the moment he was saved. Acts 26, 16 says, But get up, stand on your feet for this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only of the things which you've seen, but also of the things which I will appear to you. Like I said, from the time that Paul was converted, the Lord was already commanding him because Jesus was Lord. And that's true for all of us the moment that we come to Christ. This idea that you can accept Jesus as your Savior and, uh, you know, decide whether or not you want to make him Lord is completely contrary to the Scriptures. If, if Jesus is not Lord, then he is not your Savior either. Jesus commands all those whom he saves. That's why in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 it says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You have to acknowledge that from the moment you're saved that Jesus is Lord. He's the one who's over my life. And actually in the book of, of Romans, salvation is described as obedience to the faith. Romans 1 verse 5, through whom we've received the apostle, uh, grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. What's it talking about? Salvation. 
Romans 15 and verse 18 says, I will not presume to speak anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles. What's he talking about? Salvation. Romans 16, 25, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. To be saved is to obey. We, we obey the faith. We submit ourselves to the faith. And the gospel that Paul preached was for the obedience of the faith. And if you're coming to Jesus Christ, you are coming to an obedience of the faith. You're not coming to assert your rights. You're coming to give your rights up. You are signing up for slavery. That's what you're doing. If you come to Christ, you are signing up for slavery. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must assert himself. No, that's not what it says. He must deny himself. If you're coming to Christ, you're giving yourself up. I'm laying my life down. You're giving up your rights to you. And like I said, in this world that we live in, which is all about self-identity and self-expression and self-creation, Jesus says, no, it's about self-denial. That's what this is about. And if you're coming to me, you're giving yourself up and you're coming underneath my yoke. But what is Jesus saying? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, you'll find rest for your souls. This is a blessed slavery, blessed slavery. And the truth is, is you're going to wear somebody's yoke. You're going to wear somebody's yoke. You know, people think they're so free. I'm free. To, I want to do what I want. I want to be free to do what I want. No, no, you're, you're just exchanging one yoke for another. But everybody's wearing a yoke. Everybody's yoked up. Everybody's a slave. And you think you're free apart from Jesus, but the truth is, is that you're wearing the yoke of sin. That's what you're wearing. You know, think you're so free. Romans 6, 16 says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? You're wearing somebody's yoke. You're, you are going to be a slave to somebody. That's what the scripture says. The Jewish nation wore the yoke of legalism, trying to carry the burden of the law in their own power. It was a, a yoke of sin. Gentile nations indulged themselves in their sins and were never satisfied. They wore a yoke of sin. And both of these yokes led to misery and death. We wear the yoke of life and righteousness. And Jesus says, you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. You're, you're going to wear the yoke of somebody. Why not wear my yoke? It's easy and it's light and it leads to life. Put my yoke upon you. Take that yoke off. Put my yoke upon you. Learn of me because I'm meek and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. Come and wear my yoke. But so many of us, we want to be free and we reject the yoke of righteousness and life to wear the yoke of sin and destruction. Being a slave of Jesus is nothing to be embarrassed about. Because it's slavery of obedience that leads to righteousness and life. And we gladly receive the title slave of Jesus Christ. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And for Paul, there would have been a special connection to all the slaves that came in the past. Abraham was a slave of God. Moses was a slave of God. The prophets were considered slaves of God. The word used for the uh, slave in the Old Testament for 
Abraham, Moses, the prophets, and Paul says, I'm in the same line with all the, the prophets. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And here he, he substitutes the word God that would have been used in the Old Testament for Jesus Christ because he understands who Jesus is. He is God, he is Lord, and I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Not only am I a slave of Jesus Christ, I've been sent by Jesus Christ. Romans 1 and verse 1 again says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. The the term apostle refers to a, a messenger with authority, somebody who's been sent on a mission. There's different words for sending in the the New Testament. There's a a general word that means to send. But when the New Testament wanted to communicate the idea of sending somebody with authority or with a commission, a more technical word was used. They used the the Greek term apostello, which means to be sent with authority, to be sent as a delegate. It's more than just being sent out. One lexicon says that it carries the, uh, the, the further thought of authorization, Commissioning with a message, with a task. It was used in classical Greek for naval expeditions, you know, sent on a mission. And Paul was specifically sent on a mission with authority by Jesus Christ himself. Paul was an apostle. And there's many today who would call themselves apostles. When I was out in California, I was driving with a, with a good friend of mine, and we drove past the Crenshaw Christian Center which was also known as the Faith Dome, the church where Frederick Casey Price was the pastor. We decided to pull into the parking lot just to see what we could see. And he had his own street called Price Drive. (laughs) You know, heading to the church, he came in on Price Drive, which led to the church. And as we entered the campus, I saw uh, uh, there was a a booth there, a security booth, and they, they handed me a pamphlet, a brochure, it says, we're celebrating the 80th birthday of our apostle and prelate, Frederick Casey Price. You know, prelate, a high-ranking, you know, church official. And you can find apostles all over the city, can't you? Billboards all over the place. Apostles are everywhere today, aren't they? Everywhere there's an apostle. You know, the apostle, bishop, prophet, right reverend, prelate, potentate, primate. All who call themselves apostles, but they are not called by Christ. They have no authority. But Paul had the authority of Christ. He came with his authority. And we already looked at this earlier, but back in Acts 26, Christ commands him, get up, stand on your feet. I've appeared to you. I'm appointing you. I'm giving you a mission. So Paul was specifically called out by Jesus and appointed with a mission by Christ. And Jesus appeared to him Again, after this Damascus Road visitation, he appeared to him again. I'm, I'm going to appear to you again, it says. And all these things in which I will appear to you. I'm going to appear to you again. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, Paul says, Have I not seen the Lord? Galatians 1 and verse 11, it says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which is preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it f- from or through a revelation of Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 4, it says that he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Paul Paul had the connection with Jesus Christ. He was appointed personally, directed by Jesus Christ. There's a larger group that could say that they were delegates of the church, like Barnabas or James, the Lord's brother, or 
Titus, Andronicus, Junius, other men called apostles, small a apostles. But the strict technical definition is only used for a handful of men. The apostles of Jesus Christ. Many of the disciples, there were many disciples, but only a few who were called apostles. In Luke 6, 13, it says, When the day came, Jesus, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he named apostles. He chooses out of the large group of disciples and he says, You are going to be my apostles, my delegates, my representatives that I'm going to send out. And even Paul recognized that he was an exceptional case in 1 Corinthians 15. He calls himself one who was born out of due time. I don't even belong in this group, but I'm here. I'm born. I'm untimely born. I'm abnormally born, but here I am. You know, Timothy and Titus, they were considered brothers. They were servants. But Paul never called them apostles because I don't have the authority to make you an apostle. You know, they were sent by Paul. You know, Titus is sent to Crete. Timothy sent to Ephesus, but they weren't called apostles. So, so Paul doesn't have the authority to make anybody an apostle. And there's nobody and no church and no organization today that has the authority to make anybody else an apostle. There, there's no such thing as apostolic succession. That I know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who might have known an apostle at some point. No, you, it doesn't get passed down like that. Christ himself has to call you to be an apostle. You don't, you don't become an apostle just because you want to, because you want some fancy title on your billboard. You don't become an apostle like that. And there's Paul here who is considered an apostle. And just to, to give you uh, uh, just some of the restrictions for apostleship, number one, the technical term is reserved for those who had been directly and personally commissioned by Christ himself. You already looked at that. Now, Christ sent Paul specifically called Paul out for the ministry that he gave him. Second, the technical term is reserved for those who had personally seen the Lord. The apostles had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. They had to see Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Remember over in Acts chapter 1 when the apostles uh, were looking for a replacement for Judas, Acts 1 and verse 22, it says, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. Somebody who has seen the Lord risen from the dead has to be an apostle. It can't, we can't just make anybody an apostle. He has to see the resurrected Christ. And uh, 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 number three, the technical term is reserved for those that could perform the miraculous signs that identified a person as an apostle. You know, so you had to be directly commissioned. You had to be able to personally say, I've seen the resurrected Christ. I mean, Paul said that. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 9.1, have I not seen the Lord? I've seen him. And he also had to be able to perform miraculous signs. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul indicates that one of the ways a true apostle was identified was by verifiable miracles that were performed through him. Verifiable miracles. I'm not talking about somebody praying for you for a headache and then you feel better. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, you know, the guys that make you sit on a chair and your legs grow. I mean, I don't know what that's all about. You know, but some of you have seen that in the past. It's just like, oh, I know you got this problem in your hip because one leg's shorter than the other. It's like every place that I go where there's like one of these faith healers, everybody's got like these uneven legs. Everybody's got uneven legs everywhere. But they call themselves apostles because, look, I, I can make it grow. You had to pr produce a verifiable miracle. Second Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Paul produced verifiable miracles. 
Romans 15, 18 says, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. Paul produced signs, evidence. And the technical term is also reserved for those who are part of the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2, 19. Actually, just flip there really quick. Ephesians 2, 19 through 21, just so you can see this. We learn that there was a unique and unrepeatable function of the apostles. Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 19 with me. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the apostles and prophets are set here to be the foundation of the church. He's building on this foundation of the church, the apostles and prophets. And how many times do you lay a foundation? Once. <laughs> and if the foundation uh, is, is cracked, you go back to the person who laid it. Like, hey, I mean, we go back to the contractor. You didn't lay this foundation right. Our building's crumbling because you never laid the foundation properly. But who's the one who laid the foundation? Christ himself. He's the one who says, I'll build my church. I mean, you got a problem with the contractor now? You know, we've got to call the apostles and prophets to come back to, to like, clean up his work. You know, we need modern-day apostles. We don't need modern-day apostles because the, the foundational work of the church has already been done, and it was done well. It was done right. So we're not looking for modern-day apostles who, to, who provide the foundation for the church. The foundation's been laid. All we're doing is being built on top of that. We're like the, these living stones being built on top of this foundation. So I don't care what title somebody wants to give themselves. There are no modern-day apostles. As John Calvin says, they're presumptuously intruding into that office. They have no right to be there. Presumptuously intruding into that office. You know, like Uzziah who wanted to, you know, burn the, the incense. It's, it's not for you to do. You're barging in here. You have no right to be here. But Paul had the authority. Paul had the authority, sent with authority that was not his own, and he writes the book of Romans as a delegate of Jesus Christ, which should really silence the arguments that have been made against Pauline Christianity. There were a group of scholars in the 19th century who tried to argue that we should abandon Paul and return to the simple teachings of Jesus. And they tried to argue that Paul was inconsistent with Jesus and that he ignored or perverted Jesus. That's not just 19th century critics. There's many who would call themselves Christians today, and they say the same thing. There's many people who believe that we'd be better off without Paul. One author noted many Christians as well as non-Christians have found Paul extremely difficult and feel that Christianity would be better off without him. The divinity of Jesus, his death as a blood sacrifice, his teachings on sex and women and slavery, they would be happy if we could keep Jesus but quietly lose Paul. And I've talked to people like that, you know, like women preachers who say, well, you know, I, I'm a pastor. And I say, well, you know, can we go to the pastoral epistles and see what the qualifications are for pastors? I mean, 
you know, the husband of, of one wife here, uh, it's, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a woman. <laughs> the Bible says that, that, that men are supposed to have this office. And, you know, can we go to 2 Timothy? And they're like, well, that's just Paul. That's Paul. What, 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 what do you mean that's just Paul? You know, I just, I just go with the words of Christ. You know, and Christ didn't say that I couldn't preach, so, you know, I'm, I'm going to preach. That, that's just what Paul had to say. But you can't abandon Paul and accept Christ because Paul was sent by Christ. You, you, you turn away from Paul, you're turning away from Jesus who sent him with authority to speak on his behalf. And what Paul says about sexuality and women and slaves and the divinity of Jesus is what Jesus says about all those things. And when we accept Paul's words, we're accepting Jesus' word. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. You can't have Jesus and throw Paul away. You can't have it. It used to be a common thing to have those uh, red-letter editions of the Bible, you know, where the words of Jesus were all in, in red ink. And that can be helpful to find the sayings of Jesus, you know, quickly. I still have a red-letter edition of the Bible. But the problem with that is that if you want to get all the words of Jesus, you also have to include Paul's words, Peter's words, James' words. you got to put them all in red ink because they're speaking on behalf of Christ. So all of it is God's word. They're not speaking on their own authority. They're speaking on the authority of Jesus Christ. They've been delegated by Jesus to speak with his authority. And Paul speaks as one who was sent, has been sent. And finally, Paul says, I've been set apart for the gospel. Set apart for the gospel of God. We've got a lot to say about this. In fact, I've got an hour's worth of material to talk about this. And we're going to spend an hour to talk about this, but we'll do that next week. <laughs> wow, I didn't expect that. I, I, thought, I thought people would be ready to go. It's like, we've been here long enough, but uh, the book of Romans is fantastic. We'll talk about this next week, but uh, to close our, our time for today, you know, as we think about this introduction that Paul gives to the church at Rome, as Paul speaks for himself to introduce himself, he can't speak about himself without speaking about Christ. And my question for you is, if you're a believer, do you understand that your hobbies, your occupation, your family relations, your upbringing don't reveal the most important thing about you as a person? And that if I'm truly going to introduce myself to somebody else, I have to introduce them to Christ. Because Christ is the most important thing about me. The most important thing about you is not you. It's not about who you are, but it's about whose you are. And our identity, our true identity, is forever linked and changed by our encounter with the living Christ. I've been transformed, totally transformed, by my connection to Jesus Christ. And that's how it was for Paul. Number two, do you relate to Jesus Christ as a slave? Is that embarrassing for you to be known as a slave of Jesus Christ? Or do you glory in that designation? I glory in being a slave of Christ. I'm not embarrassed by this. This is a privilege. This is my privilege to be a slave of Jesus Christ. One author said this. He says, to be a bondservant is terrible by itself, but to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ is paradise. 
Self-surrender taken alone is a plunge into a cold void. You know, you don't know who you're surrendering to. You know, just surrender. Give yourself up. Self-surrender by itself would be a cold void. But when it is surrender to the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, it is the bright homecoming of the soul to the seat and sphere of life and power. I've given myself up to Jesus Christ, and to give myself up to Christ is paradise. It's life, it's peace, it's righteousness. I've given myself up to Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a slave of Christ. Take my yoke upon you. And have you considered what it means for the crucified Jesus to have an authorized delegate like Paul? I love this. I was reading this in an introduction to one commentary. He says, criminals do not have royal ambassadors. The authorities lock them up, they punish them, they strip them of their rights for their crimes. People look down on them because of the shame that they bear. This is true in our own day as much as it was in the first century Roman Empire. But this was even more so for crucified criminals. For those who were arrested and hung on a cross, people would pass by and not look on them because of their criminal status. And because of the gruesome sight, death by crucifixion was a horrible way to die. Painful, drawn out, gory. So why would a former Hebrew of Hebrews and Pharisee, one who fastidiously obeyed the law, identify himself as the ambassador of a crucified criminal? Paul provides the answer to this question by showing that the man that the leaders of Israel and the Roman authorities once crucified is indeed the king of kings. That Paul is, is a royal ambassador to the nations and that Paul has been summoned to bring about the obedience of the nations. When we look at Jesus, when we think about Jesus on the cross, you know, being crucified, his life being taken from him, we look at that same Jesus and say, that one's my Lord. <laughs> that one's my master. That's the one that I'm here to represent. This is, this is the one that's the most important person in my life, and I can't even introduce myself without introducing him. It's all about Jesus. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Amen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've had. Uh, Father, we uh, look forward to all that we'll learn through the, the book of, of Romans. It's so rich, uh, so, so much, Lord, that uh, we have to, uh, uh, to work through, Lord, and I'm looking forward to the journey ahead. And Father, I pray that you would use uh, this word, that you would instruct us, Lord, through this word. Uh, Father, that uh, you would help us to be uh, better ambassadors of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who loved us, the one who gave himself up for us. The crucified Savior is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we're here to represent our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to call men to come and obey him, come and worship him, bow the knee to him. And Father, I pray that that would be true of, of us, and we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, uh, the one that you pulled out of the, uh, the fires of destruction and set him up as a, an example, Lord, for, for all of us, an ambassador for Jesus Christ and the Apostle to the Gentiles. Now, Father, we thank you for the work that you're still doing, uh, even today, in sovereignly bringing men to yourself. And Father, I pray that you would use our words, uh, that they would hear through the, the preachers who are right here, uh, who you've transformed to be uh, ambassadors of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. 
Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.